Well, before I begin this morning, I think I need to offer a disclaimer. I've had a couple of people ask me uh, as I was going through my morning this morning about uh, my prospective uh, procedure of surgery tomorrow. And so it occurred to me that uh, there may be more people than I realized that thought I was going to have surgery uh, tomorrow. And originally I did have surgery scheduled. But uh, I've decided to put that off. Uh, I've got a pastor friend up in uh, uh, the city that uh, has had this same procedure done. He encouraged me to visit another doctor. So I'm in the process of continuing my investigation. I'm, I'm functioning pretty well right now. Uh, I, many of you have heard me complain about my joints, but actually I'm doing better right now than I think I was a couple of months ago. And uh, so thank you for your prayers, and I would just ask your continued prayer for wisdom on that. Now, this song that uh, Ken sang this morning um, is special to me. I heard it, uh, I think, for the first time by a group by the name of Sela. I was driving home from Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, several summers ago. One of our daughters had been through a, a personal crisis, and I remember just weeping as I, I heard that song sung. It's a song about surrender. And I think it's a great introduction to this book now that we're going to be studying for the next four weeks. So if you have your Bible, please open it to the book of Jonah. And if you can't find the book of Jonah, then look for the book of Daniel. If you can find Daniel, then work your way forward to the book of Hosea and then Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and then you'll come to the book of Jonah right before the book of Micah. Jonah is the fifth of 12 books in the Old Testament known as one of the minor prophets. But it's interesting that Jonah is different than almost any other prophet prophetical book in the Old Testament because it's really a book of historical narrative. It's a biography. It's a story of his life and what God did in his life rather than just a message through a prophet. And it's this book that we're going to be looking at now for the next four weeks. Jonah was born in Gathhepher, a town just south of Nazareth, near the Sea of Galilee, the hometown of Jesus. And according to Jewish rabbinic tradition, some believe that Jonah was the widow's son that was brought back to life by Elijah in 1 Kings 17, verses 17 through 24. Some of you remember that story of that that young man that was, was resurrected by the great prophet Elijah. And then he went on to become a disciple of the prophet of Elisha. Interesting detail. How many of you have read the book by Don Piper, 90 Minutes in Heaven? Some of you. It's an incredible story of this guy that was in a car wreck and believes that he ended up in heaven. And I guess we'll know for sure when we get to heaven, whether he was really there or not. But it was a dramatic story, and he felt like God had spared his life. Well, Jonah, if he was indeed this widow's son that was resurrected by the prophet Elijah, was spared then for a very specific reason and a very special 
purpose by God. And whenever we read a story like 90 Minutes in Heaven, or we read about, uh, about Jonah here, the, the, the prophet, and if, if someone's spared in that way, we think, well, God's got a reason for sparing them. He must want to do something with their life. And that was the case, I believe, with, with Jonah here in this story. He's got a very important message for each of us here this morning. God wasn't finished with Jonah yet. Now, Jonah was a fortunate man because he lived during a golden age, during the, the, the lifetime of the nation of Israel. It was, he, he lived during the, the time of the prophet, or pardon me, the, the king, Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II, if you read about his story in the book of Kings, restored Israel's borders. He reigned for over 50 years, and it was a very prosperous time during this, this time in Israel. And this bully that badgered Israel, Assyria, was actually in a time of despair. And so Israel was flourishing, and Assyria was struggling uh, during this time. And he probably preached sometime during the 800s before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I mention the name Jonah, what is the next word that comes to your mind? Jonah and the whale. Absolutely. That's immediately where our mind goes when you hear the word or the name Jonah. And it reminds me of a humorous story of a pastor found a little girl standing out in the the hallway one day in between Sunday school and church. And she was standing there with a book under her, 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 in her hand, under her shoulder. And uh, the pastor was in a mischievous mood. And so he asked this little girl, he said, well, what's that book you got in your hand? And she said, well, it's the story of Jonah and the whale. And he said, well, where'd you hear the story of Jonah and the whale? She said, well, I've heard about it in Sunday school. And he said, well, now, come on, you don't really believe that story, do you? And she said, well, yeah, I believe the story. It's real. I heard about it in Sunday school. And he said, well, now, what if Jonah never really lived? You don't really think that somebody could get swallowed by a big fish and end up in that fish's belly for three days and survive and live to tell about it, do you? And she said, well, yeah, my Sunday school teacher told me that, that that's what happened to Jonah, and it's in the Bible, and it's true. And then he pushed her a little bit more, and he got down, and he, he was looking in her eyes, and he said, now, come on, honey, you don't really believe that story, do you? I mean, somebody doesn't end up being swallowed by a fish and live to tell about it. And she looked him in the eye and she said, yes, I believe it. And he said, well, what if Jonah, uh, he said, how can you prove it? And she said, well, I'll ask Jonah when I get to heaven. And he said, well, what if Jonah isn't in heaven? And she said, well, then I'll tell him to talk to you. And there are a lot of people that don't believe the story because it just couldn't possibly be true. It's just too miraculous. That couldn't possibly happen. And you know what? It did happen because God is God and God 
can do anything that God wants to do. And it's in the book, and it's true. Jesus talks about Jonah not in an allegorical way, as if he was some kind of fictitious character. He talks about Jonah as if he was a real man in Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 32. And in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 through 42, Jonah is mentioned as a real man speaking to real people called the Ninevites, this great Assyrian city. And so God can do whatever he wants to do. And he's at work in that man's life he was and in our lives this morning. Now, I want you to know something about this book. Just let your hand turn through the book for a moment. You'll notice that there are just four chapters. We're going to get through it in four weeks. And this first chapter is divided into five sections. We see God speaking in verses 1 and 2. We see Jonah running in verse 3. And then we see him rationalizing as God is pursuing him. He begins to rationalize, and then he responds at the end of the chapter. Now, that this chapter begins with God speaking. Notice verses 1 and 2 again, which Cliff read for us. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and he said, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, about 220 miles north of modern-day Baghdad, or about 500 miles north of the nation of Israel. Here was this great city, and that word great is repeated 14 times in this book of, of Scripture, and it was a great city. It was the capital city. Now, if God came to you and he tapped you on the shoulder and he wanted you to go preach to Israel's arch enemies, the Assyrians living in Nineveh, how many of you would volunteer for that job? I mean, a guy could get killed preaching to God's enemies. Who would want to go there and do that? I mean, you'd be crazy to go preach to the Ninevites. And yet that's what God asks Jonah to do here at the beginning of this chapter. Why would anybody want to go preach to the Ninevites? Why would God want to spare the Ninevites? That's what I'd be thinking if God came to me and he spoke to me and he asked me to do this. Has God ever asked you to do something illogical or unreasonable? And you knew that God was speaking to you. But the more you thought about it, you thought, well, now, wait a minute. That's illogical. That's unreasonable. Who would want to go and do that? And so you knew that it was God, but you stopped and you paused and you went a different direction. Has God ever asked you to do something difficult? Has God ever asked you to do something unpleasant? something that maybe you didn't prefer to do. I mean, I know that God just tapped me on the shoulder. I know that God's asking me to do that. But you know what? That's going to be challenging. That's going to be difficult to travel 500 miles to speak to people that I don't really want to speak to. And after all, they're, they're arch enemies of God. 
And so that's the question on the floor this morning. Has God ever spoken to you? And God is God, and God is real, and you know what? God is still speaking today, just like he spoke to Jonah. And so I know that God's spoken to you. I don't have to ask you that question, because if you have a relationship with the Lord, then the Lord has come alongside of you at times, and he's tapped you on the shoulder, and he's called you. He's wanted you to do something. God is still speaking to individuals, just like he spoke to Jonah, and God is still speaking to churches. God is still speaking to churches, just like he spoke to the children of Israel. And so God comes here at the beginning of this chapter and he speaks to Jonah. But notice the second part of this story. Jonah runs when God speaks. And so we read again in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee. And notice that the word Tarshish, this city that he runs to, is repeated, the name of that city is repeated three times in verse 3. And one Bible commentary tells me that the reason that city is repeated three times in in verse 3 is because it demonstrates the determination that Jonah had to get away from God's presence. He's going to go to Tarshish, to Tarshish, to Tarshish. And Tarshish was probably located in Spain, and it means smelt because it was a mining community, smelting, smelting. And so they would melt down the, the, this, this, these minerals, and, and it was a mining town. And Jonah wanted to get as far away as possible from God. Notice that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord to this mining town that smelts or melts down metallic stuff there in the mineral trade. Now, have you ever been there and done that? We can all find ourselves in this story, can't we? Just like we could find ourselves in in Ken's song. We've all been there. We know that God has spoken to us at times. And we, we run in exactly the opposite direction. And we run as fast as we can, as far as we can, to get away from God's presence. Because we know that God is speaking to our heart. He wants us to do something. And this is the story of Jonah here. We're all like Jonah. And notice the great lengths to which he goes to run to this mining town called Tarshish, repeated three times in verse 3. And the thing I think we need to hear this morning is that you cannot run from God. You can't do it. You can try. Jonah tries in this story. But you can't get away from God. You can't run far enough. You can't run fast enough. You can't get to the ends of the earth and escape the presence of God. And Jonah tries to do that. Turn to Psalm 139 for just a moment. Psalm 139. And I want you to look at verses 7 through 12. We've got the verses, I believe, on the screen, but it's better to follow along in the Bible. 
And notice what the Bible tells us here. Where can I go from your spirit? Here's David. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, the light become my night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light is as light to you. You remember the poem, The Hound of Heaven? It's a poem written by Francis Thomas, 19th century British poet, about the relentless pursuit of the love and the grace of God in our lives. And in that poem, he says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I hid from him and under running laughter, I sped those strong feet that followed, 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 followed after me. And Francis Thomas was a believer, but he was addicted to opium, which was an over-the-counter medication being sold in those days. And he struggled with addiction. And he went up and down in his spiritual walk. And he wrote this poem, The Hound of Heaven. John Sott said it describes his life because of the relentless pursuit of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. Now, there's another humorous story told of Dr. Martimore Adler. Maybe you've heard of him. And suddenly, on one occasion, he became irritated. He was angry at the people that he was talking with. They were doing some Bible study, having a discussion. And so he just got up and he walked out and he slammed the door behind him. And the people just sat there in stunned silence. Somebody finally broke the silence by saying, well, at least he's gone. And then somebody turned to him and said, no, he's not gone. That's the broom closet. And that's the way it is when we try to get away from the presence of God. You can run as fast as you want to, as far as you think you can get, but you're only walking into the broom closet because you cannot get away. You can't do it. Read Psalm 139 again. You can't get away from the presence of God. Now, notice God's pursuit in verses 4 and 5. We just talked about it. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. These were more than likely Phoenician sailors. And if you know anything about the ancient nation of Phoenicia... They worshipped a multiplicity of gods. They had a pantheon of gods. And people would pick whatever god they wanted to worship. Poseidon was the god of the sea and the god of the earthquakes. And so these sailors notice the phrase. It's very interesting. Each of them picks out his own god. 
And they begin to pray. They begin to beseech the gods of the heavens to spare them. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah slept in the deep of the ship. Now, I want you to notice something here in this story. Notice, please, that God didn't need Jonah. God didn't need Jonah. God didn't need Jonah to do his work. And guess what? God doesn't need you. And God doesn't need me. There are a lot of times I'll, stay, I'll sit up here, I'll stand up here at the front of the church, and I just thank the Lord for the privilege of being able to represent him on a Sunday morning and speak his word. Because you know what? God doesn't need me. God could have brought 10 other people here to, 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 to New York. He truly could have. And God doesn't need you. God doesn't pursue Jonah because he needs him. God had a lot of other prophets that he could have, could have used during Jonah's lifetime in the nation of Israel. He could have called one of them. God doesn't pursue Jonah because he needs him. God pursues Jonah because he loves him. Because he loves him. And God wants to work with you and with me because of his love and his grace. He's tenacious in his love. And he pursues us because he wants to help us. Not, and he wants to change us, not because he wants to punish us. A lot of times those waves and those storms that he may send into our lives that feel like God's punishment are really a sign of God's mercy and love. It reminds me of the story of a little boy who had his toy sailboat out on a pond one day and a wind came along, just like the wind was blowing through these curtains earlier. A wind came along and it blew the little toy, toy boy out onto the pond. And the little guy was just despondent. He was losing his boat. And then this man picked up some rocks and began to throw them at the little guy's boat. And he became horrified. He's going to destroy my boat. Until he realized that the rocks the man was throwing were going beyond the boat. And it was creating a ripple effect. And he got the picture. The ripples that were created by the rocks We're bringing the boat back to shore. There will be times in your life where God taps you on the shoulder and he wants to do something in your life and you're running from him. And you think he's out to punish you. You think he's out to get you. And it feels like the rocks being thrown at that boat. But it's really God's love in pursuit of you. God wants to help you. God wants to change you. God wants to work with you in your life. And so he pursues Jonah in this story. Now, one little side note before we finish this out. Notice the consequences that resulted from Jonah's running from God, his rebellion, his unwillingness to cooperate with God in this situation. You know, there's a lot of times in our lives where we think, well, yeah, God tapped me on the shoulder, but you know what? Nobody sees. I know that God wants me to do this, or I know I should give this up. I know this is wrong. And you know that God wants you to give it up, but you go in a different direction. And you you, you know he's speaking to you, but nobody sees. You know, I can get away with this. 
there really aren't any consequences. It's not going to hurt anybody. But I want you to notice the consequences here to Jonah's rebellion and running. There are several consequences which are set in motion. Look at, look at what the, the story tells us. As the, the sea gets rougher and rougher, look at verse 5. Notice that these men become petrified and they begin to cry out each to his own God. And isn't that a description of us? A lot of times when we're running from God, we'll reach out to any God but the God. You know, we got all of these gods in our life that we think can bail us out and help us out of the situation. The sea's getting rougher and rougher and God's trying to get our attention and we'll turn to any God in the pantheon but the God. And then notice as as this story goes on, what takes place. Look at verse five again and notice that they throw the cargo into the sea. We'll do anything and everything to lighten our load, but, but look to the Lord. And then notice that they cast lots to find out who's responsible. They start playing that favorite game that we all like to play. It's called the blame game. Who got us into this mess? Why is this storm breaking on the ocean? Why is this ship about to break apart and we're all going to drown? Who's responsible? I love the the translation that Cliff read from. That responsible is repeated twice. Who's responsible for this? If we can only get our hands on him. The blame game. And so we we like to blame people for the mess we're in and the storm that's come up. We'll do everything but look to the Lord. And then notice that they, they do their best to row back to the shore. Even after Jonas told them, throw me into the ocean. Look at verse 13. The Bible says they dig their oars in. If you look at the footnote of the, the margin of your Bible, they, they dug their oars in. And don't we do that in our relationship with God? We, we, we just dig in. We just dig in. We're going to dig those oars in, and we're going to just we're going to oh we're going to oar and we're going to row as as hard as we can. Anything, but what? Look to the Lord, the solution that He provides. He's already given the answer in verse twelve. And so Jonah rationalizes and. I just find it fascinating here when they finally identify the culprit here. Look at verse 9. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. And some of your translations say, I worship the Lord God of heaven. And don't we do that sometimes in our relationship with the Lord? This is just so typical. How many times have you come into church and you're running from God or you're struggling with something in your relationship with the Lord, and you know you're struggling, and he knows. But what do we do? We put on our spiritual performance face, and I'm a worshiper of God. Let me ask you, was Jonah really a worshiper of God? Absolutely not. You can't worship God and run from God. Those two don't go together. But that's what he says here. That's his claim. I worship God. I fear the Lord. Do you think Jonah really feared the Lord here? He's running from the Lord. And yet many times we do that in our relationship with the Lord. We'll say the words, 
but our heart isn't in that same place. One of my dear friends said that true worship is honoring God with the wholeness of my heart. Real worship is demonstrated in the way we live, and we begin to worship God when we, what? Run to God, not run from God. And Jonah was running from God. And so he rationalizes, and then finally he comes to his senses. Look at the end of chapter 1. He confesses, you got the guy, pick me up, throw me into the sea. And the raging sea grew to a calm. He begins to assume responsibility for his situation. Now, I want to pause here before we wrap this up to make another little observation. This is very important. Notice that Jonah begins to assume responsibility for what he's done and where he is in his relationship with the Lord. That's what he does here at the end of this chapter. That's very important because if you're here this morning and if God is speaking to you, and I believe he is about something, you cannot get back to where he wants you to be until you take responsibility for where you are. The first step in repentance and repentance is probably one of the most important words in all of the Bible because it means to turn around and travel in a different direction than you've been running or going. The first step in repentance is to admit where you are now. You've got to own it. You've got to admit it and come clean with God where you are now. And that's what Jonah does. He assumes responsibility. And that's the first step in turning around and turning back to God. And it's the same for a church as it is for individuals. We have to own it, whatever it is in our lives. Now, notice the results of his taking responsibility, verses 15, 16, and 17. God's peace is restored, verse 15. The raging sea calms down. God's power is revealed Pardon me, verse 16, God's power is revealed. God's peace is restored, verse 15. And then God's provision is released in verse 17. God provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, let me ask you, you're out there in this this sea that's calming down. They've thrown you overboard, and you're out there in the ocean, and you're trying to get back in the will of God, and here comes this big fish which is about to swallow you. Would you think that fish is an enemy or a friend? Thank you. I agree with you. That, that fish wouldn't look very friendly to me. I would think, I've done it now. God is done with me. He's done with me. That's it. But what we're going to see now next week is this fish, which Jonah thinks is the worst thing that could possibly happen to him in his life. Oh, no, here comes a whale. He's going to swallow me. That whale, which he thinks is the worst thing, actually is going to become the very best thing that ever happened to Jonah 
in all of his life. You see, God isn't out to punish us. God is out to help us, to rescue us if we're willing to come back to him. But we have to get to a place of brokenness. And I'm just going to tell you, I've, you know, we just celebrated Meg. We won't sing happy birthday to, to, to you again, Meg, okay? We sang, she, you just tripped the big two zero. Can I say it? The big two zero. Well, I'm, I'm past the big six zero now, okay? And I've lived long enough now, and I've done enough, enough running, and I, believe me, I, I've run. We've all been there, haven't we? And so I've experienced enough waves and enough storms that God sent my way to bring me back, to reel me back in. And I thought God was going to do me in. But that's not the heart of God. That's not the heart of God. God wants to save you. God wants to rescue you. God wants to bring us back to himself. And you know, the worst time to save a drowning man, you know when it is? The worst time that you can possibly try to rescue a drowning man is when they're still fighting to stay afloat because if you go up and try to rescue them at that time, they will pull you down with them and you'll both drown. Brokenness. And God's had to bring me to a place of brokenness in my life through some of those storms and so on. But that's the best place you can be because when you're broken, God can have his will in your way, his way, his way. Not your way, his way in your life. Would you bow your head with me this morning? So Lord, now as Rick's gonna come and lead us in our closing hymn, pass me not, O gentle Savior. We've all gotta be honest today. We run in little ways and we run in big ways. And sometimes we run a long way and sometimes it's just a few steps. And sometimes it's just a stiff arm. But we know that we resist your work in our lives. And so, Lord, now this morning as we stand to sing this closing hymn, I pray that you just have your way and your will, your way in our lives. If there's anybody here this morning that needs to just come forward to make it right, this is an open invitation for you to do that. I would love to pray with you and speak to you. Or you can pray silently. But let's stand now and sing this hymn from our hearts together and let God have his will and his way in our lives. Let's stand together.